Time for Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. Dr. Chen is the pastor at Grace Church of the Bay Area, a church committed to glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ through verse-by-verse expository preaching to learn exactly what God has revealed in His Word. Now, here's Dr. Chen with today's message. In Matthew chapter 18... Jesus himself gives a specific instruction to the church as to how to deal with sin. It's what we have called in church history the process of church discipline. It begins with one-on-one addressing of sin, as we've seen over the past two weeks, just a general admonishment of sin, rebuking of sin. It doesn't involve the church. It doesn't involve pastors, elders, deacons. It's just Christian to Christian. But it goes through four different steps, and the final step is putting the individual out of the church should he or she not repent of that sin after multiple talking, after much prayer, after much discussion. In between, there is a lot going on, but at the end, if there is no change, if there is no repenting, turning back to God, that individual, that sinner must be put out of the church. Church discipline is a difficult thing. After all, we are more often than not talking about a friend, a brother, a sister in Christ. But church discipline is necessary when you consider the purpose of it. When the defiling nature of sin and the glorious nature of God are compared and contrasted, we we can be thankful that the Lord has given us such a wonderful tool to purify and preserve His bride, the church. What's more, He has given us examples of how this is to be done. And this morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we're going to begin a multi-week series called Discipline or Defilement. And that is very telling because, as we will see, if you do not discipline the sin properly, you are going to, not possibly, not risking, but you will allow the defilement or the continuation of the defilement of the church. And although we do not get the details of the whole process in 1 Corinthians 5, we are given a case study of church discipline that we can learn from. So would you turn with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 5, and this series will cover a big portion of the chapter, if not all of it. But this morning we are in verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though as I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This morning, I want to give you six components of a case study on discipline in the church. Six components 
of a case study on discipline in the church, and naturally we will learn something from each component. You could say that it's six lessons from a case study on discipline in the church. The first components of this case study in the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago that Paul is addressing and is talking about the concept of discipline in the church, the first component is the perverted relationship. The perverted relationship. Let me read for you again verse 1. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Paul begins by telling them not only has he heard, but it is widely known as is indicated by the Greek word that is translated for us, reported. It indicates that this is well-known knowledge, at least among other Christians around the world. Keep in mind, this is a big deal, not only because of the sin, uh, but the grossness of the sin and how it has spread the news is pretty significant considering there were no telephones or even modern mail system. There is, what he has heard, gross immorality in the church. The word immorality speaks of general sexual acts outside of marriage. It's the Greek word Porneia, porneia, from which we get the obvious English word. In the Greek world, uh, this meant uh, specifically prostitution, but the word was adopted by Hellenistic Judaism to refer to all extramarital sexual sin. Now, the particular sin that Paul is addressing is incest that takes the form of someone who is in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Now, I want to clarify, not that it really makes it any better, but this would not be his biological mother, but his stepmother. And the reason we know this is because if you go to Leviticus 18, there are sins listed, and there are two terms that are clearly referring to two different people. There's the term mother, and there's the term father's wife. So we know that the term father's wife is not talking about his biological mother. So what we have is a Corinthian man who is part of the church at Corinth. He is sleeping with a woman that his father married after the father is no longer with the biological mother, either through divorce or death, we're not told. It is even possible that the father is no longer living. Doesn't matter, we don't know, still sin. What we do know is that this is so immoral that the Apostle Paul says that even unbelievers, Gentiles, do not condone such behavior. And to say this, to say that even the Gentiles do not engage in this kind of a moral relationship is really the height of scorn for a Christian. It would be the same today. If someone was committing, a Christian was committing a sin, and we said, Hollywood wouldn't even portray that. If we said, non-Christians think this is gross, that's pretty offensive. That is... Uh, quite the indictment on that Christian's behavior. And we understand by God's general grace that even unbelievers have a sense of morality. And so he points this out. And here you have the Corinthian church as a whole that is 
trying to win, or they should be trying to win, unbelievers to Christ, to a saving knowledge of Christ, and they are living more sinfully than those they are trying to win. They're living more sinfully than the Corinthian pagans around them, the idol worshipers, the people who, because of their immoral behavior, there was a term coined, a phrase coined called to Corinthianize, which means to come to a level of immorality that is below even the average pagan. Now, Paul's not overstating the case here. He's not uh, being dramatic. This kind of union is in fact, or was in fact rather, forbidden by Roman law. So this wasn't just sin in God's eyes. This wasn't just sin according to God's Old Testament law. It was wrong in the eyes of the secular Roman government. And just to be clear, the word has in has his father's wife tells us very clearly that the relationship is sexual and they are living together. That's bad enough. But we can also deduce that this woman is not part of the church, probably not a Christian, which is explained by the fact that Paul is only addressing this man's sin and not the woman's sin. And so, in looking at our case study of discipline in the church, this is the sin. There is a perverted relationship going on. This is the particular issue that he is now addressing. Keep in mind that up to this point, through chapters 1 through 4, a quarter of the whole letter, we have seen him addressing other sins and confronting the Corinthians on this sin or these sins. It really comes down to pride, which he's going to address again here in this passage. But back to the incest. As wrong as it sounds, and perhaps it frankly doesn't sound as bad in our wicked day and age, right? Well, if mom's dead or divorced, then what, why not, right? He's no longer with this person. Or, and there's just so much wickedness in our day and age. I, I know that kind of bothers you, what we're talking about here, but I can easily see our world excusing this, justifying it, even showing us how it's a good thing. But regardless, it really doesn't matter how unconventional the sin is. Yes, we're looking at a gross relationship, a perverted sexual relationship, but I want to make mention that everything we are going to look at this morning and in the coming weeks and looking at church discipline applies to any and all unrepented sin. I want you to be careful. Don't think that church discipline or even admonishment or rebuke is only for gross sins like these. They are for every sin from incest with your stepmother to habitual lying or anger. And so that's a perverted relationship, but what we need to learn from is that any sin needs to be confronted, repented of, and ultimately can lead to church discipline. Well, let's move on and look at our second component of this case study on church discipline, the problematic response. The problematic response. We find this in the beginning of verse 2 and where Paul says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. 
he is talking about the response of the Corinthians to this sin, and it is clearly very problematic. Because you see that they're not just ignoring it, they've actually become arrogant. And we've already seen Paul confront the Corinthians on their arrogance and their pride. Here, it's manifested in their response to this individual's sin. Now, we aren't told exactly how their arrogance plays into this. There's a few options we have. It could be that it was their pride in general that we have already seen that would make them feel so self-satisfied, so spiritually superior, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Jesus, that they don't see the need to confront sin. Hey, we're doing okay, we're doing great. It is also possible that their arrogance is actually stemming from this sin. That is, they see this sin as evidence of their misguided freedom in Christ and the wonderful grace that they have been gifted We'll look at this later on in 1 Corinthians. They're doing this as they live, as we have seen, as they live and act like spiritual kings. They're living as if they are above both biblical and Gentile standards of morality. And so they're almost, uh, or they are being arrogant in this sin. Look what people in our church can do because we're so great and we're so spiritual that it really doesn't matter. We don't see this here, but I have seen people with such a misunderstanding of God's grace that they committed sins similar to this and said, I'm actually glorifying God through this because I am redeemed and everything I do is of the Spirit and I glorify God through everything. And just getting arrogant. And and this individual that I'm referring to, actually confronted the rest of us uh, at, our, at our Bible study, at my Bible study in college, and said, you're all wrong. You don't get it. You can sleep around. You can do all these things, and we glorify God because we are redeemed. We see the danger of pride not only in how it affects us personally, but also how it is detrimental to the church as a whole. Their response is flat out wrong. It goes against the very reason God created the church, instituted fellowship, put us in each other's lives. In fact, it would be just as fitting to also call this point in our outline the perverted relationship because of their perverted view of this sin, their perverted view of this individual, and their perverted view of God and what He desires. But what would be the proper response if What we're looking at is a problematic response. What would be the proper response? Well, he says it right there in verse 2. They should be mourning. They should be mourning over this man's sin. I want to point out that this word is the same type of mourning or deep felt sadness that you would exhibit when your closest friend or relative dies. That's how serious sin is. That's how much we should love God and be passionate for His glory and see this, this, this part of the body of Christ, the part of the bride of Christ, this believer, this person who claims to want to glorify God and all He's doing, and you see this sin or even sin in our own lives, we should mourn, we should grieve. Not just because of the practical ramifications, not just because you're scared he's going to be kicked out of the church, but because of your passion for the glory 
of God. Mourning over sin, whether it's your sin or another person's sin, comes from a love for God and a passion for His glory. Can I be just honest with you as your pastor? If you felt uncomfortable during last week's sermon because you don't confront sin, then this is probably your problem. You don't confront sin because you don't truly mourn over sin. And you don't mourn over sin because you're not passionate for God's glory, at least not to the degree that you ought to and to the the degree that He deserves. And you're not passionate for God's glory because ultimately, whether you admit it or not, you think less of Him and more of yourself than you ought to. And this is why arrogance murders mourning over sin. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. What are, what are the two primary reasons people give for not confronting sin? I don't feel comfortable doing that. Can I rephrase that to help emphasize the point here? I don't feel comfortable doing that. This also includes excuses like, I don't know him well enough. It's all about comfort level, but it's about your comfort level. Another common excuse is, well, I don't think what he's doing is really that bad. The first is all about yourself and your comfort, not God and his pleasure or even the, the sinning Christian spirituality. The second makes you the standard of what is sin or not rather than God. And I think we would all agree that both are a form of arrogance. And when an entire church doesn't mourn over sin, especially sin going on in its midst, then that church is about to drive off the cliff to spiritual disaster. This is what Paul is warning the Corinthians about. And in the Old Testament we have several examples of an entire group of people facing judgment for not dealing with one person's sin in that group. Let me put it this way. As a Christian, I think you would very easily and clearly say that your top priority, your primary concern is God's glory. But what happens when you tolerate sin and let it go unchecked in the church. Compare this to your number one goal is God's glory. When you let sin go unchecked, Christ is dishonored, His body, the church, is disgraced, and the devil gains a victory. All because of what? Because I don't feel comfortable. You know, another excuse that we may be tempted to say when confronting sin, we kind of look at, at, at the church structure, uh, and especially uh, these days when we have just more established church and there's a lot of good literature out there of uh, how to have church 
you know, you have nine marks doing stuff. You got Grace Community Church doing stuff. And so we say, well, you know, the small group leaders or the elders or the pastors, they need to handle this. And the excuse people give is, well, this is just, it's not for everyone. Confronting sin, it's not for everyone. No, it's not. It's just for Christians. It's just for Christians. So let's avoid the problematic response and deal with sin the proper way. And that leads us to our third component of this case study, the proper resolution. The proper resolution. Picking up in the middle of verse 2, up through the end of verse 3. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Had the Corinthian church truly mourned over this man's sin, they would have resolved the situation by putting him out of the church because clearly he's not repenting. In fact, as indicated by the ESV translation, some believe that this is actually an imperative, not so much a result of mourning, but that Paul is commanding them to remove this man from their midst. Now, whether or not this is a command here, we know that it is a command elsewhere, particularly in Matthew 18. Now, Paul goes on in verse 3 to explain how he has handled this situation from afar, but in his own mind. Although he is not with them physically, he is with them in spirit. Uh, There's nothing to over-spiritualize here. We use that term. I can't make it, but I'll be with you there in spirit. As such, he has already passed judgment on this man. Now, not judging in the sinful sense, but having passed a judgment, a verdict, a conclusion about the case, so to speak. And though the Corinthians have failed to respond rightly to this sin, both physically by not putting them out and spiritually in their view of the sin, Paul has passed a sentence in the church courtroom. And this incestuous man has been tried and condemned. And notice the contrast here of Paul's proper response and their improper response. He says, I, on my part, the Apostle Paul, whereas you, Corinthians, are arrogant. Now, the tense of the word judged, coupled with Paul's authority in the church, shows us that the judgment has been passed and the judgment stands. They may not want, may not want to do the right thing, but he will. And frankly, this isn't even an issue or necessitates pastoral or apostolic discernment. In other words, you don't need to have any sort of spiritual authority or special insight to see how bad this sin is and that the biblical consequences must be faced. And so, yes, he could say this and tell the Corinthians to do this because of his apostolic authority, but for us, we all know what sin is. It's in the Scriptures. We know very clearly what sin is and what isn't sin. And so we have the Spirit-induced ability to know what is sin and what isn't, what should be confronted and what shouldn't. 
what Paul is doing here and what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do, this is the proper resolution. Not the best resolution, right? Because the best resolution would have entailed the Corinthians already addressing this issue and that Paul wouldn't have even had to write this in this letter or have even had heard about it. But it's proper in that he is doing now what God wants and fixing what the Corinthians have done, which is not what God wants, what the Corinthians have done. Now, Paul goes on to bring the Corinthians in with him in this regard, and this leads us to our fourth component of a case study on discipline in the church, the powerful resolve. The powerful resolve. Look at verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, although he has made a decision, he is still calling on the Corinthian church as a whole to assemble, to come together to deal with this sin. In other words, Paul must deal with this sin, but he also wants the church to agree with him and do what is right. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You're invited to join them for worship service in Burlingame, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit the website gracebayarea.org for directions and other information or to view a live stream of the service. As a listener-supported program, we ask that you consider making a tax-deductible donation so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Donations can be made through our website, kfax.com.